welcome to Pod Academy. This is a recording of the launch, or rather the relaunch, of Lisa Vogel's seminal work, Marxism and the Oppression of Women, Towards a Unitary Theory. My name's Elizabeth, I'm one of the organisers of HM Conference in Sydney. Welcome everybody to what should be a um, really good meeting. Um, it's the launch and relaunch of Lisa Vogel's book on Marxism and Oppression of Women. Um, we've got three fabulous speakers and then Lisa will respond as a discussant to those comments. Um, I'll introduce everybody now. Um, we've got Sue Ferguson who um, is an academic in Canada, Kate Davison who um, is researching a PhD between Berlin and Melbourne, Australia, Tithi Bhattacharya who, where are She's in the, in the US, sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should suffice. You're, I know you're right there, but like... Um, and, and, and Lisa herself. So we're going okay. in the order on the um, paper, so Tithi's first, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Liz. Um, it's, it's a great privilege to be on this panel with um, Lisa and uh, Kate and Sue and ably chaired by Liz. So... I'll start by showing you the two copies of Marxism and the Oppression of Women Towards a Unitary Theory that I have. This is my old copy, which I got in 1992 when I just finished college, my undergraduate degree, um, showing my age here. And this is the new copy that came out of HF um, with a very able uh, introduction by um, Sue Ferguson and David McNally. Now, um, I first read it in 1992. It was, um, I was pointed towards it by uh, a fabulous uh, Indian historian. I was in uh, Delhi at the time, Shumit Sharkar, and he said, you must read Marxism and the Oppression of Women. So the reason uh, he directed me towards it, I think, is because all of us, as a new generation of Marxists, as well as an older generation, were going through a difficult time in 1992. Marxism was not the common parlance in, um, in, on my campus, in the university, in, in academia. It wasn't, um, it wasn't quite the case that the best lacked all conviction, but it was certainly the case that the worst was full of a passionate intensity. So it is, uh, it is in that context that um, I read this book as, uh, with a growing backdrop of uh, starting my MA at, at Delhi and uh, then onwards towards a PhD at SOAS that I kept going back to the book because of a couple of things. That what was, the, what was so attractive of the, about the book and what was it cutting against? The first thing that I would say about it was that this was a book that was explanatory rather than descriptive. A lot of the work that came out during this time about gender, about how we experience oppression, were some of it was very good work, but they were all descriptive. Vogel's book was, to me, one of the most clear explanatory uh, texts that talked about the relationship between uh, women's oppression and the capitalist system as a whole. The word unitary had particular resonance as well. And the book itself deals with the concept of unitary in trying to respond to the growing understanding at the time that patriarchy was a system of oppression that was somewhat 
autonomous to exploitation, which was to do with capitalism. So there was class, and then there was racism and sexism, etc. So Vogel's book uses unitary to um, actually reject this autonomous tracks of social relations and say that, no, this is a unitary system and we need to explain it. So she uses unitary in that particular way in, in the book, but to some of us who read it at the time as, we, uh, as young graduate students, it was also particularly resonant because it was, it was a fantastic word to use in an age which was the celebration of the fragment, or as um, David and Sue says particularly well in their introduction to the new edition, the cult of the particular. And so in that age, this book um, brought the focus back into a unitary way, not just of thinking about women's oppression vis-a-vis class, but a unitary way of thinking about the system as a whole. It brought back to focus um, the question of the family, but it theorized the role of the family at the level of production rather than simply at the level of exchange. Now, the family, as we all know, have often haunted Marxist theory but I'd like to add to that that it hasn't always haunted Marxist practice because revolutionary Marxists have been um, very often at the forefront of uh, fighting against uh, uh, sexism and all forms of oppression. However, theoretically, the status of the family within the relations of production or even the forces of production have often haunted Marxist thinking. And Vogel's book, again, because it's explanatory, I found showed us the role of the family not as a source of oppression, which we all knew it was, but why it was so. In other words, it drew attention not to the internal dynamics of the family, which we all experience, but on its relation to the system as a whole. And the third um, fantastic contribution of the book was it restored to analytical prominence the extra (coughs) workplace and the struggles that emerge from it. The central understanding of the book draws attention to the moment of the reproduction of labor power, not necessarily the reproduction of the the, capitalist Uh, system as a whole, which is obviously related, but how does labor power get reproduced? And Vogel is basically going back to capital and rereading for us its gaps and silences. And she is saying, look, this insight is there in capital, but we need to take it and move it forward. And by doing this, the the question of how labor power gets reproduced draws attention back to what labor power is, what it means to labor, and how it is reproduced, regenerated fresh for uh, for a new day to work under under capital. And so, again, the, the significant issue here is 
that often we will see that by class struggle or by struggle, we tended to look, not, not always, but there has been a tendency to look to the <coughs> workplace or the point of production as the only source of emergence of struggle and to draw back the attention into the, uh, the reproduction of labor power, then restore to analytical prominence the capitalist system as a whole. And it pointed out that sometimes struggle will begin because the conditions for the regeneration of labor power were being attacked due to capitalist efforts to, to, to reproduce itself. So for instance, some of the greatest struggles of, of, our, uh, of our times, the, both the French Revolution as well as the uh, as, as well as the Bolshevik Revolution began with the demand for bread uh, and marches by women. So uh, we are uh, we are talking about a very important then, and this is this is where I will conclude a strategic importance to this uh, this mode of, of of thinking, and this is where we come to the new launch, which is I think absolutely fabulously well-timed. It is about time that we, uh, we re-read and retrained ourselves to, to think this way. And I think it is particularly well-timed because, as I said, that strategically, when you think about, as we move on to the, 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 the fourth decade, essentially, of neoliberalism, um, we, we realized that unlike the 1960s or the 1930s, the workplace as struggle has been denuded by four decades of um, attacks by neoliberalism on organized labor. So at this moment, it is particularly important to see the, the system as an analytical whole because I think in the next uh, few years, and as we have seen in the past few years, struggle will often be sparked off outside of the workplace, that, the, the way we saw in Ferguson um, uh, recently. And to misunderstand the nature of these struggles as a not class struggle will be a strategic error for a new generation of the left. In fact, we need to understand these various forms of struggle as class struggle and to understand that sometimes it will be from outside of the workplaces that struggle will lead back to the workplace just as the movement can be from the inside to the outside. So more than ever, the concept of capitalism as a unitary concept becomes doubly important. And I really hope that with this new issue of the book, a new generation of scholars will pursue this line of inquiry and consequently a new generation of revolutionary Marxists armed with this idea of the system as a totality and the struggle against it as unitary will lead us on the streets. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just wanted to also express my um, my gratitude for being invited to speak on this panel. I was a little bit starstruck, you know, when I saw the lineup of speakers and thought, "Oh my God, why?" <laughs> but um, anyway, I, I, I dealt with it. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so in another talk given on this book, Sue Ferguson, sitting to my left, uh, described the theory of social reproduction developed by Lisa Fogel in this book as the path not taken. In the introduction to the new edition, she and David McNally talk about how the book maintained a sort of underground existence, but from what I've been able to tell from this conference, it seems like there's been an underground party going on in Canada. (laughs) Social reproduction theory party going on in Canada that no one else was invited to. (laughs) Apart from Timmy. Um, So just, just to say that. I think the path not taken metaphor resonates especially with my experience Uh, becoming active in feminist struggles in the late 1990s in Melbourne, in Australia. Uh, Had Vogel's path been available or known to a whole generation of student feminists and socialists at that time, we may have been able to avoid much bloodletting. In the end, it was lucky for me that one of the socialist comrades handed me a copy of Sharon Smith's Mistaken Identity article from the ISJ, or I may have given up on activism altogether. This period anteceded the 1980s, a time of high productivity but also decline and disintegration within socialist feminism, symbolised in Heidi Hartman's 1989 article declaring the relationship between Marxism and feminism as an unhappy marriage. 1970s. It oh, started oh, republi- republished though, her article. 81. Oh, 81. Uh, so my generation of young activists arrived on the steps of the municipal office after the unhappy marriage had been well and truly officially declared <laughs> Null and void. (laughs) (coughs) If one were brave enough to stick with the label of socialist feminist, a difficult thing to do in the context of a quite vicious bullying campaign being run by people influenced by identity politics and patriarchy theory, some of them even calling themselves socialist feminists, it, it then took on a vague definition of people who thought class struggle was somehow important but were suspicious and distrustful of groups in the Leninist tradition in providing an explanation for women's oppression. This became a leader with a distrust of Leninism and by extension Marxism altogether and we faced the prospect of landing back at the doorstep of dual systems theory even though we had knocked before and found it wanting. Some of those involved took the road of radical feminism, others gradually slid out of radical politics and graduated from university keeping what was useful for them from identity politics as they entered their careers. A smaller group turned towards socialist or after 1999 the anti-capitalist politics and undertook a re-evaluation of identity politics, eventually abandoning it in favour of a recognition of the uniting power of either the working class or the anti-capitalist movement. Uh, This is how people were conceptualising it at the time. I myself eventually realised and decided that I did not need or want the hyphenated feminist suffix, yet I realised that this is controversial and I'm loath to generate a debate about terminology. Why am I telling you all of this? This book is being republished, as Tiddy said, at an opportune time. It's at a time where there has been, in the past five years, a re-emergence of struggles around issues of sexual and gender-based violence, most clearly symbolised in the advent of the slut walks, around issues of sexism and so on. But what's become clear in that time is that there appears to be a whole generation of socialist progressive activists and revolutionary Marxists who have, through no fault of their own necessarily, little more than a rudimentary grasp on many of these debates and many features of these debates. While some of the political questions have come up around uh, gay and lesbian issues, for example, the campaign for equal marriage rights, in the absence of struggles focused on women's oppression, there have been few opportunities for ideas to be tested in practice, further developed, tied into a broader analysis of capitalism, economy and politics. And so I'm not just talking about intellectual work being done in a university environment, but you know, the point of being a revolutionary Marxist is to 
you know, to have praxis, um, to sort of take it outside the university. <coughs> Some of them may have read various social ex socialist explanations of women's oppression, especially the absolutely valuable and crucial intervention made by Lindsay German in her book Sex, Class and Socialism, which I think continues to stand the test of time in terms of empirical, historical, descriptive analysis, as um, Tilly was saying. And I should note here that um, this is a category of work from which uh, Vogel distinguishes her necessarily abstracted theoretical model um, developed in this book. But they're less likely until 2013 to have had the opportunity to engage with a theoretical intervention uh, into Marxist understandings of women's oppression of the kind presented in this book, which take us right back to the working through by Marx of production, labour power, value and exploitation, often seeing concepts that sit at the edge of debates around women's oppression but aren't really located at the centre of those discussions as being absolutely key uh, to understanding women's oppression. To understand women's oppression, you need to have a very, very strong grasp of Marxism in general and, and understandings of capital. Many of the debates that were raging at the time this book was published and which experienced a resurgence in the 1990s against the background of a more fully developed postmodernist trend, as Tiddy also outlined, uh, seem to have become again part of everyday discussion fodder. Uh, and this wasn't the case six or seven years ago. It is the case within the last three to five years, I think. It has become more and more the case. Privilege theory, identity, women's only organising, the notion of safe space, patriarchy theory, dual systems theory, the precise origin and explanation for sexist thinking, advertising, behaviour, are all discussions that are back on the agenda um, after a long period of seeming hibernation. The consequence of that hibernation, however, is that it has become clear that the theoretical blades in relation to women's oppression, even amongst those who are sharp on many other questions, have become dull to an often surprising, if not alarming, level. <coughs> Vogel's book can therefore serve as a theoretical primer par excellence. If my generation of young activists had been able to even read just the first few chapters of the book, which provide a succinct precis of the socialist feminist corpus, beginning with Juliet Mitchell, it would have been clear to us that many of these questions had been deeply and extensively debated in the past and we might have begun from a much more advanced uh, theoretical level and it might have equipped us to properly resist the encroaching liberalism which variously manifested in identity politics and later postmodernism. In the time I have left, I just want to highlight uh, two of what I think are the most important insights of the book. Um, Vogel draws attention to the anti-reformist efforts of Zetkin and Lenin within the Second International, and she singles out Lenin in particular as having anticipated a unitary approach to understanding women's oppression through his uh, ideas around the revolutionary potential of struggles for democratic rights, uh, that is, struggles for equality. So she says, Lenin places the issue of women's subordination in the context of the reproduction of labour power in class society. His grasps of the workings of capitalist social reproduction enables him to sketch the outlines of a theoretically coherent relationship between sex and class oppression by means of the concept of democratic rights. Given the contradictory character of equality in capitalist society, struggles for democratic rights potentially have serious revolutionary import. To fight for equality means, in the first place, to demand and defend the best conditions possible for people within capitalist society. By their very nature, however, these conditions are severely limited as Lenin puts it, capitalism combines formal equality with economic and consequently social inequality. <coughs> the tendency to increase in equality has, therefore, a highly contradictory outcome. The more democratic rights are extended to all persons, the more the oppressive economic and social character of capitalism stands revealed. The struggle for equality threatens the dominance of capitalist social relations on two fronts. 
It promises to reduce divisions within and among oppressed classes, as well as between those classes and other sectors by placing all persons on a more equal footing. Simultaneously, it exposes the foundation of bourgeois society to be class exploitation, not individual e e e equality. From a useless exercise in bourgeois reformism, the battle for democratic rights can point beyond capitalism. So I think this is important uh, when we think about why Marxists consistently sort of emphasise the need for struggles around equal pay and so on and so forth, but also campaigns around gay marriage and why, why they can have a revolutionary and not just reformist uh, sort of potential, depending on how, how they're argued. But this is also related to the second insight that I want to mention, and this is sort of the last section of what I want to say. Um, which is, I think, the book's inherent rejection of the reductionism that often intersectionality theory sort of leads towards. So Vogel says, Many groups of varying makeup and character are denied equal rights within capitalist society. Some, like those comprised of persons of African or Native American origin in the United States, have specific histories as oppressed peoples. Their members' lack of equality derives from a history of oppression that relentlessly passes from generation to generation, stamping each, per each person's experience from cradle to grave. Other groups, like homosexuals, the disabled or the elderly, are made up of individuals with particular characteristics acquired more or less accidentally and not necessarily shared by kin. These characteristics, which may or may not be permanent, form a basis for discrimination and denial of rights. Women in capitalist societies are neither an oppressed people with a distinct history, nor a collection of individuals with certain characteristics. They are, rather, the 51% of human beings who have the capacity to bear children, which, if done, may replenish capital's supply of labour power. Their lack of equality has, in other words, a specific character that distinguishes it from the denial of democratic rights to other groups. It is a specific character rooted in women's differential place within, capitalist, within capitalist social reproduction. So that is, it's not just any old oppression. You can't just sort of interchangeably talk about oppressions, the various oppressions, as though they're all the same. I think this section provides crucial clarification to the reason why various oppressions have not come about the same way and they're not comparable. The dominant version of intersectionality doesn't work here. Intersectionality is descriptive, but it cannot explain why those intersections happen and how they arise. I think the most exciting thing about Vogel's book for me is that it therefore, therefore offers an application of the historical materialist method in the question of women's oppression, where intersectionality tries to fudge the question of totality or universality, as, uh, uh, as outlined by Tiddy, uh, insisting instead on, on multiplicity, diversity of experience, difference, etc., revealing the unmistakable influence of postmodernism, mm -hmm. I think. The historical materialist method insists on the totality of the system, on the relationship between exploitation and oppression, and on a class on class as a unifying category, specifically the working class as a unifying force for change. Uh, the book offers a Marxist method of analysis for which, for me, uh, the suffix feminist uh, on, the, on the end of socialist is no longer necessary. Um, and I think everyone should read the book <laughs> so, that they, so that we can all start from a kind of a more advanced position uh, to take these debates further. And I just wanted to um, echo uh, something that Titi said in one of her articles um, recently about understanding sexual violence in neoliberalism, which you should all also read, um, <laughs> that I think one of the things that this book does for me is that it shows us that it's not true that the working class cannot fight in the sphere of reproduction but it is true that it can only win 
against the system in the sphere of production. And so I think that that's sort of one of the key insights that comes out of the book. Uh, so thanks, and I too feel very privileged to be uh, up here with, with uh, my colleagues here. I am um, still stuck on the question of the party of social reproduction that was going on in Canada. I was trying to think that through, and it didn't feel like a party. <laughs> um, and I think that had to do with it being very much focused in the academy, and there was a very kind of political, economic development of, of social reproduction theory in Canada that was very useful for clarifying um, some of the questions I think that I've come to to think through more clearly, you know, think, think more about in terms of, of the framework that Lisa sets out for us. Uh, my comments here are going to be short and I'm just going to, um, you know, talk, I think, about a couple, both the on the one hand, historical significance of, of Lisa's contribution and the theoretical significance. I will probably repeat a little bit of what you've heard already, so I, I apologize for that. Um, historically, just broadly, I think one of the key things that she did that was so important was to reorient the discussion um, in, a, in a better direction. Uh, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. And theoretically, I think she has set us up for a, the point of departure for a truly historical materialist explanation of women's oppression under capitalism. And, I, um, and that is, I want to emphasize, it's a departure point. I think she, and, uh, she's given us the theoretical tools to start to think through a number of questions that still need to be thought through. And I'm not going to talk too much about those. David and I talked about them a little bit in the, in the Introduction. There are panels throughout this conference that are that are grappling with that, right? Um, for sh uh, this weekend and last year as well. And there is in the making a special issue of, of historical materialism journal that will also grapple with that. So I I, I think uh, I will just orient you um, to to those uh, spaces instead. Uh, so historically, and again, this, much of this will be a little bit repeated, but um, as you know, uh, Lisa was working in the late 1970s, early 80s, and at the point where there was an impasse in uh, Marxist feminism. And that impasse, I think, as much as anything else, had to do with um, the, what question Marxist feminists were trying to or claiming to answer. The debate was framed around what causes women's oppression. Is it capitalism? Is it patriarchy? Um, and what is the nature of the interconnection? Uh, and they floundered in part because the answers to those questions um, have to be almost, you know, are, are, are by default really kind of reductionist or dualistic um, trans-historical answers. And, I, and so I think there, it was the wrong question. Um, a more historical materialist method doesn't really search for causes. It looks for the interrelations between aspects of the social, right? So the, the task is to theorize how different aspects of the social whole, and the social whole is being perceived as not a finite thing, but a historical, ongoing, um, moving thing, um, how those aspects relate to each other, how they work together as part of a shared lived reality, to try to explain what it is that we all share uh, in, in a capitalist world. And I think to do that, and both Tithi and, and Kate have talked about how important theory is um, to, to understanding this. And 
I think what, and I, I think that that's a really important mind or point to keep in, in mind that what really we should be doing as historical materialists is trying to connect theory and history all the time. And so to be constantly moving between the two is what I think the historical method is all about, the historical materialist method is all about. So Vogel in her book, I believe, reoriented the framework in that direction, in, in a historical materialist direction and started to ask, rather, rather than asking about causes, she's asking how do women's oppression and capitalist economic relations relate to each other, constitute each other, um, as part of a capitalist social whole. Uh, and this is an especially interesting question because, of course, the capitalism has this ostensible um, uh, mode and the way that capitalism was being talked about, it is being talked about still, is as an equalizing system, right? And, um, uh, and that, that it, and, and some people were more guilty of this than others, but it's talked about often as, as something that's kind of distinct from the social world in some ways. It's simply an economic system. Um, so her theory doesn't attempt to explain trans-historical origins or causes of women's oppression or how systems inter intersect, um, but the conditions under which women's oppression is made possible. That is, the conditions or the limits of what's possible under capitalism and how, and, and how that affects and, and how women's oppression is, is part and parcel of that. So just to move then uh, again briefly onto that theory a little, a little more specifically, her theoretical contribution, I believe, pivots on the insight that capitalism requires human labor power but doesn't produce it. So there's no internal um, economic method me mechanism for producing the very thing on which it is based um, in the in the direct labor capital uh, relationship that is internal to the direct labor capital relationship. So it's, capitalism isn't a system unto itself. It, it isn't an economic system unto itself. It is actually a social system. And so rather, what she points out is labor power is produced external to that direct labor capital relationship. So it has this internal, external kind of um, uh, relation. Um, and it's a socially determined process. It's, it's produced in socially determined institutions and, and through socially determined um, and historically determined processes. Marx, of course, talks about what these are. He talks about slavery and closures, immigrations, and he does talk about households, too, recognizing them. And what Lisa does is really focus on the households as a very central, important part of this, but not because, as earlier socialist feminists had done, not because, of, because the households are sites of men's appropriation of, of women's labor, or, and not because they are, or because they are sites of capitalist appropriation of women's labor, but because they are the crucial mechanism and a near universal um, mechanism of ensuring the daily and generational renewal of uh, labor power. Um, and because of that, they open up the opportunity in some ways to regulate and control those practices and processes that are internal to, to uh, the household. They're an essential condition of capitalist production. Um, and it's for biological and historical reasons, as I think Kate was clear in, in her comments pointing out, that women have a unique relationship to uh, household labor. It could be different in different modes of production. It is different. Um, but even And even within the capitalist mode of production, this is a variable thing. There is some autonomy or some considerable flexibility in the forms in which this can take, in the form of privatized reproduction because it's an internal-external relationship to the direct uh, labor-capital relationship, because it's not directly controlled by capital, right? 
Um, so households are never simply about producing labor power for capital, and that is why they're an interesting place to try and think through what's going on and how and how what are, what is going on there. Um, but at the same time, it's not invariable. It's not limitlessly flexible, and I think that's the, that's the key point. There are real limits to what's possible. It possible um, because they are a condition because the, they are a condition of, of capital's, capital's um, production, capitalist production. Um, and capitalism favors privatized and cheap labor renewal. And, and I think those are the two really key things about, about to, to remember. And that's, for instance, that, that is why the state steps in in the 19th century with laws to protect the household, to shore up the household by you know, removing children and women from workforces, uh, for instance. Uh, because the, the, the family was disintegrating. It's also why today the state facilitates the cheap reproduction of, of uh, labor power through um, these schemes, certainly they're uh, in most advanced Western countries, um, that, that prevent or that allow for migrant temporary domestics to, to come in and, and uh, do paid productive labor. So I'm just going to leave it there and because uh, I've Thought it would be helpful to just emphasize, to sort of rehearse a little bit. I guess I think what I are the, what I think are the kind of key um, points in the theory, um, and um, I'll just say that uh, you know overall Lisa's uh, contribution I think has been in clearly grounding us in a historical materialist approach as a point of departure. I think it's super exciting that it's being taken up today, and I really look forward to to the next few years as as the fruits of, of people's thinking uh, move forward. I'll just reintroduce Lisa Vogel. Well, I want to start by thanking thanking historical materialism and the conference and everything, and especially thanking. Sue Ferguson and David McNally, because I think there was something going on up there in Canada <laughs> that ended up producing the book. And I don't think it would have happened, or maybe it would have, but anyway, the form in which it has developed owes a lot to the party in Canada, I think. And I'm very grateful for these, all these comments, which I found really amazing and on market. The book was published in 1983 and as Sue and David say, nothing happened. But this is what I had hoped would happen because I put a lot of ideas out there, some of which I wasn't very sure of and didn't feel I had enough knowledge to understand and formulate. Uh, I felt I was writing in isolation. I already had a PhD, I had a job, and so forth, and things were pretty dead. Although I don't think I conceptualized it at the time. So um, it's just amazing to hear something that I waited 30 years for. <laughs> I wanted to say something that really comes, that is sort of general, may have been touched on here. Uh, everything that everybody said just was so on the mark, as I said, and for me, very moving. <coughs> Titi started with the question I've been asking myself, 
Just what, what, what do they see here? Uh, and you told me. And it seems right. And some of it I had thought. And Kate autobiographically explained another piece of it. And Sue reviewed what she had already contributed in a way. And as a professor with students, you can forward it. I am retired. I live in New York City. I am retired. And I'm not working on this stuff anymore. So I don't know how I could contribute. A couple of general points, and then I want to go back to the chronology of where the book fits in in terms of history. One thing that came up in a panel I attended yesterday, this is my version of how it came up, is that there is always dominant ideology, or what I call dominant ideology. In other words, one way or another, those who control power and communications and space and so forth control the narrative. So, and in their own favor. So one should always be looking for an alternative if one is a historical materialist or a revolutionary, not to be surprised to find it, but to look for it. It must be there. There must be some people who think a different way. Um, and also the distinction between descriptive and explanatory, which I formulated as the distinction between theory and history, or the distinction between theory and in the empirical world, um, is important. And I think is people who reject that distinction slosh around between them without knowing it. Anyway, uh, let me turn to the, some comments I put together about the chronology and the source of the book. Um, in 1983, it was published by Rutgers University Press in the, in the United States and by Pluto in England. I didn't want to lug the whole book, but here's the cover again. <laughs> um, and then 30 years later, in 2013, a new edition came out in hardback from Brill and a year later in this wonderful paperback from Haymarket. Both of them used Soviet kind of constructivist or early Bolshevik art on the cover, which pleases me. Uh, um, and the new edition has this wonderful new introduction. It also has an article by me that I published in 2000 in Science and Society in which I tried to translate what I consider my very dense and difficult text more clearly. So I want to, as I say, talk a little bit about the historical and theoretical context in which I wrote and published it. Although it's, it was published in 1983, the book was a product of the 70s maybe even of the 60s. And as you have all studied and a few of you lived through, uh, the 60s and the early 70s was a time of ferment, social movements around the world. It's hard, if you missed it, it's very hard to recapture it, I think. 
raising questions of justice and liberation. Although many people ignored it, it was kind of impossible to ignore. Time magazine featured it in its own way, etc. And I was actively involved in the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement and sort of out of duty, the anti-war movement. And I came to it already attuned by my upbringing to issues of class and liberation. Uh, I'm a so-called red diaper baby, which is a term I actually try to avoid. I prefer to say I'm a child of the left. I wrote a little about my personal trajectory in another book of essays. So I was already thinking and acting coming out of the civil rights movement and participating in the early women's liberation movement. I was already thinking and acting on the book's issues in the late 1960s. I also participated in study groups on Marx and Marxist theory. You are much better positioned today to do that. There weren't translations. We didn't know, in my opinion, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we tried very hard and very seriously, and some people joined revolutionary groups and so forth. And I, along with other women's liberationists, somehow became gripped by the question of how to situate what the left used to call the woman question within a Marxist theoretical framework. As it developed, this effort to conceptualize women's situation in the context of capitalism came to be called the domestic labor debate. And as everybody said, I, in the beginning chapters of the book, I tried to explain the origin of that and show that there were alternate ways of looking at it. And I would say it came down to be an issue of the relationship between two systems, capitalism and, and patriarchy. Although the word patriarchy did not get used until around 1971. You couldn't find it before 1971, and I think it came out of Britain. Um, by early, by, and it was called the dual systems. You, you, many of you know about this. At the same time, although later accused of being ignorant of the issues of race, race was current. How could you come out of the civil rights movement and not talk about race in the United States? And then sexuality, ethnicity, producing a model of multiple systems that are, quote, inextricably intertwined in a matrix of domination. Um, I think that's Pat Collins. This type of analysis is today call, often called intersectionality. It was and is popular because it seems to include everything in an accessible and nuanced way. But I don't think it's right. It's, it's a metaphor. So the notion that race, class, gender, etc., are independent systems capable of being added or meshed together in a complex interaction it's always seemed to me mechanical and unsatisfactory, better, I thought, to find ways to analyze women's oppression within the categories of Marxism. So I set out to find the one-system perspective, or what I called a unitary or a social reproduction perspective. And you've heard how I did it, with a careful reading of Marx, Engels, and others. I left some people out. 
I was, you know, as I say, I was sort of working alone, not showing it to anyone. Um, there was nobody to show it to. <laughs> it's not true, but that was me. That was me. And I came to feel that the most relevant concepts were labor power and the reproduction of labor power, as Sue described. And then a final three chapters in which I put the concepts I felt I had pulled out of my reading into what I called the social reproduction perspective. But I'm not sure. You know, I was hoping other people would pick it up uh, and disagree. And not a single, as I recall, not a single review addressed the theoretical argument I thought I had made. Okay, moving ahead. Upon publication in 1983, the book sank like a stone. The few critiques pointed to its denseness and abstraction, its supposed inattention to history and the empirical, etc. Meantime, for a variety of reasons, I went off in a different direction. Um, the rest of this has already been said. Turning to the present, we have this resurrection of interest, and a, what you have done is drawn a different conclusion from the opposition I posed between the dual systems and social reproduction perspectives, uh, seeing social reproduction as a persuasive and fruitful starting point. As I say, I waited for you. Um, obviously we are in a new historical moment I'm not yet familiar with how people have been using my work but it may just be as described as a sort of inspiration from the past I don't know um, I think this is a very hard period to be doing either theory or activism you know like we, we, when we went south for SNCC or any other uh, civil rights organization. The enemy was very clear. Nobody disagreed. <coughs> Segregation had to end. Few people disagreed. How to do it, etc. Now things are very mushy. And although you have many more texts and knowledge available to you and smart professors and translations, it seems to me that the, the lack of even an illusion of being part of a world movement is very hard. Maybe, maybe you don't have that illusion. Uh, but I'm very pessimistic, and I'm hoping something will happen that will make me less pessimistic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.